In the name of Jesus, amen. May we be seated. Dear saints, where did you all come from? And where do Lutherans come from? And what makes a Lutheran a Lutheran? And how did all of this begin? And what's the point of all of it? Well, to answer this question, we need to rewind exactly 500 years. And if we were to do that, we would see that there was a monk named Martin Luther who believed with all of his heart that the only way to salvation is our good works and our obedience. So it might strike you as odd, but this is truly and really what Luther believed. And we know this because of his famous writing late in his life. Luther was asked to write an introduction, a collection, uh, a preface to his collection of Latin works. And there he tells us the account of how he discovered the gospel in its clarity. It was about the winter of 1518 or 19. And you'll notice that this was after Luther posted the 95 Theses that was in uh, 1517. Luther went up to study in the castle in Wittenberg. And before teaching his students, he would sit there and study and read the scriptures. And he was struggling to understand what the gospel meant. In fact, he was still laboring under the belief that he was saved by his own merits, that he had to do something in order to be saved, that his good works would contribute to inheriting eternal life, and that if he tried really, really, really hard, and if he was really, really sincere, then his good conduct would win God's favor, that it would win his love. So while he was studying, he got stuck in a particular book and a particular chapter, and a particular verse. And that book is the book of Romans, which you heard from today in the epistle reading. But it wasn't chapter 3. It was chapter 1, and it was specifically verse 16 and following, where it says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All right. So here's the way Luther heard these words. When he heard the words, the phrase, the righteousness of God in which the gospel is revealed, he heard something like this. The righteous demands of God by which that he then expects us to be righteous. And if we aren't righteous, then we will be punished. Do you see what's going on in Luther's head, right? He knows that righteousness comes by the Ten Commandments. If you want to be a good and righteous person, then you fulfill the Ten Commandments. You do what they say. You shall and you shall not. If you keep the commandments, then you're righteous. And if you don't, then you're not. And you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the righteousness of the law. But when Paul says that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, Luther heard that as righteous demands even above and beyond the Ten Commandments. In other words, Luther thought, look, the law expects you to do this much. The the Ten Commandments say do this, and that's already impossible. Now the gospel expects you to do even more. In other words, the gospel wasn't the gospel for him yet 
as you know it, it was another law, but even worse. For Luther, Jesus was just giving another law like Moses, but a law that was stricter and more harsh. And it just wasn't Luther who thought this. Everybody thought this in the day. Not everybody, but the majority of people thought this in the day. So monasteries and convents were built for people to leave their normal, ordinary, boring lives to go and become super spiritual and super pleasing to God the Father, to do things above and beyond what anyone else would do or could do. They take vows of poverty and vows of celibacy, denying themselves families and and neighbors and friends in order to do the gospel, to go above and beyond the law. For Luther, at this time, Jesus came to be an example only to us all, to simply show us what we're supposed to do and how. We're supposed to do it. He came to give a harsher law. Moses said, do not murder. But Jesus says, do not even be angry. Moses said, do not commit adultery. But Jesus says, do not even look at a woman lustfully. Moses said, do not steal. But Jesus says, if someone asks you for your coat, you give them your shirt also. And this is what Luther thought the gospel was. This was the prevailing thought of the day. In fact, this idea of salvation by works is what most people in the world believe today, and it's what the heart naturally believes upon birth. I've preached this at length over the past five years, so I'm not going to go into it now. But suffice it to say, Luther knew he had a problem. Where most people would deceive themselves and think that they're good enough for God, where most naively and arrogantly think that they are, in fact, capable of earning God's kingdom, Luther wasn't so foolish. He was actually honest. He knew his sinful condition. He knew that no matter how hard he tried, he could never be good enough. He knew he was a a, a poor, miserable sinner. He knew he couldn't control his thoughts, his heart, his emotions, his desires, his impulses, his intentions. He couldn't live up to the righteousness of God. So when he was confronted with these words from Romans chapter 1, what did he do? I'm going to read it to you from Luther's pen itself. In his preface to his Latin works, in his own words, what happened? So pay attention. He writes... I had, a, I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans. But thus far, there had stood in my way not the cold blood around my heart, but that one word which is in chapter 1. The justice of God is revealed in it, the righteousness of God. I hated that word righteousness of God, which by the use and custom of all my teachers, I'd been taught to understand philosophically as referring to formal or active righteousness, as they call it. That is the justice by which God is just and by which he punishes sinners and the unjust. Then he goes on. But I, a blameless monk that I was, Luther being sarcastic here, felt that before God I was a sinner, an extremely troubled conscience, 
I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience, and I couldn't be sure that God was appeased with my satisfaction. I couldn't be sure of this. I did not love, no, rather, I hated God who punishes sinners. In silence, if I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled vehemently and got angry at God. I said, isn't it enough that we miserable sinners lost for all eternity because of original sin are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments? Why does God now heap sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel and through the gospel threaten us with his justice and his wrath? This was how I was raging with wild and disturbed conscience. I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans 1 and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. This is stunning. This is hardly believable had it not come from the pen of Luther himself. Could you ever have imagined, if you had ever heard this, that Luther, a pastor, a theologian, would have confessed that he hated God? But you can understand this, right? There God is commanding, demanding, accusing, condemning, and yet he knows we can't keep the Ten Commandments. And then all of a sudden, without anyone's prompting, he comes along with the gospel, which apparently demands even more and has sharper teeth than the law before it. And all of this under the constant threat of punishment and eternal condemnation. And all of this is what Luther was going through. This was his struggle, his angst, his trouble. All he wanted, all he desired with his heart was that he would be pleasing to the Lord, but he was not. And no matter how hard he tried, he could find no hope for mercy until something happened. So before I tell you what happened, let me tell you what didn't happen. Luther didn't take a walk outside and clear his head and suddenly find inspiration in nature. Even more, God didn't lay anything on his heart or tug at his heartstrings. Neither did he have a special dream or a direct revelation from God. He didn't hear a voice in the middle of the night. He didn't open up his Bible randomly to a page and drop his finger on it and hope that God would give him the answer. There were no angels, no vision, no special voice from heaven. There was no adding to the scriptures or taking away from it. Nothing. None of it. It was just Luther and the Bible. Just our dear brother Martin and scripture alone. And so what happened to Luther when he was faced with this hatred and angst with, and misery with God he kept reading the Bible. He kept grinding away, cross-referencing, making notes, reading as if his eternal life depended upon it, which it did. He kept translating from the Greek, squeezing out every meaning of every single word, the grammar of every single phrase. He kept reading and reading and reading. And then after all of that, Luther says this, I meditated day and night on those words until at last... By the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. I want to point something else out here quickly. The reformation of the Lord's church 
which is a massive event, all happened because a man beaten down by his sins and discouraged, afraid of God, read the Bible. It wasn't a special Bible, a new Bible, or a book no one had seen before. It was the same Bible we have and read here week after week. And what did he do with that Bible? He read and he read and he read and he studied and he kept at it and he did not give up on it. So if we are to care anything about God in eternal life, then we would do the same things. Read and read and read this Bible. In fact, later on, Luther says in his large catechism, don't stop studying God's word until you know more than God himself. Which is a fancy way of saying never. So God forbid that any one of us would ever think for a second that we've read the Bible enough. God forbid that any one of you would think that we read the Bible too much in church that the service is too long, that we become too bored of the word, that we try to move on from it, that we know it too well. Why is this important? Because the Holy Spirit does his work through the scriptures and not apart from them. I'm preaching to myself here too. All right, so now after Luther says he studied this word day and night, he finally paid attention to the context When he reads Romans 1, he finally noticed a word and one word, one little word, and that word was faith. It occurred to him that faith is a thing you have when you believe a promise. For there to be faith, there has to be a promise to believe in. You can't have faith in a command or in a demand. You don't believe commands. You obey them, right? So, for example, if, what if I were to say, everybody give me $100 right now? You'd think I'm crazy. And then what if somebody in the back of the church stood up and said, I believe him. I totally believe him. You would think he's crazier because this guy's a fool. There's nothing to believe here. He's just telling you to do something. You don't believe that. You just do it or don't do it. It's a command. If I say, do this, don't do that, don't necessarily believe it. You can't have faith in those words. Either you obey it or you don't, but there's nothing to believe. And just as you can't believe a command, neither can you obey a promise. You believe a promise. So if I say, next week, I'm going to give everybody in this church $100. Now, there's nothing for you to do or obey, is there? But there is something to believe. You take me at my word. I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm telling you what I'm about to do. There's something. There is something to put your faith in. I won't be doing that, by the way. So. <laughs> but that is the difference between obedience to a command and faith in a promise. So Luther saw that Romans 1 quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, which says the righteous will live by faith. And here, dear saints, is where Luther breaks through. This is what changes everything. This is why we are here today and the face of the world has changed. This little word faith means that the righteousness of God is not a commandment on top of all the other commandments, but that it is a thing that is given a promise, a gift in which we put our faith in something to trust in and believe in. 
If it comes to be me by faith, it comes by a promise. And if the gospel is something that requires my faith, then it cannot be a work. It cannot be my obedience or my doing. The righteousness here of God in Romans 1 is none other, not a command or a law given to us. Rather, it is a gift from God, the very righteousness of God himself given to you. And this Zion is the foundation of the gospel. It is the bedrock of the church. It is what makes a Christian a Christian. It's the only thing that makes you a Lutheran, not the Midwest, not your heritage, not your skin color or your language. It is faith in the promise, this very promise. And dear saints, the promise is this. That for the sake of Jesus' death on the cross, our sins are absolved. The promise is that we stand acquitted of all of our guilt before God, who is now in Christ alone a gracious and loving God. It is a promise that no matter how many times you have failed to live up to the righteousness of God, no matter how many times you've fallen short, no matter how many times you've been so deep and corrupt in the filth of your sin and wickedness and unbelief, God does not lay upon you another law to get you out of it. Rather, the promise is that he has already laid the law upon the back of Christ, his only begotten son, and all of the demands that the law requires. He put them on Jesus. The promise is that every single one of your sins, every single one of your thoughts, every single one of your wicked desires are imputed and given and attributed to Christ. And in his body, he took them all, went to the cross and nailed them there, killing them in his flesh. The promise which you will live by is that he has forgiven all of your sins from the first one to the last one. And all of these promises, he promises to you that all of your sins are gone. And all of the good works he did, all of the perfect righteousness of God, which Christ accomplished in his life, his suffering and his death, belong to you. He imputes and attributes all the righteousness of God to you. As if you did it. And he promises you that this is exactly what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago. He promises that those who believe in that, in that event, that moment, when Christ atones for the sin of the world, they will never see death. His promise is that those who believe in this will be with him forever. And when your dear brother in Christ, your brother Martin, was found by the gospel in this way. Listen to what he said. He said, at once, I felt I'd been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. Immediately, I saw the entirety of scripture in a different light. I ran through the scriptures from memory and found that other terms had analogous meanings. For example, the work of God, that means that God is working in us. The power of God, that means the power which he makes us powerful. The wisdom of God by which he makes us wise. The strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. All of these things are not things he commands to us, but things he gives us. I exalted the sweetest word of mine. The righteousness of God, which with, with as much love as before I had hated it with hate. 
the phrase of Paul was for me the very gate of paradise. The righteous shall live by faith. So before closing, ask yourself this question. Is there anything more precious than this gospel? Is there anything more wonderful than the promise that God has forgiven all of your sins in Christ? Is there anything that can possibly make you more happy, more joyful, more at peace than knowing this? I can't think of anything. And this holy and precious promise which you have by faith is your everlasting comfort, your source of joy, your everything. And you will not let it go. You will hold on to it tightly and you will cling on to it with all of your might even when dying. Even though the entire world is going to scoff at you and mock you and persecute you to make you loosen your grip on this word, on this promise. Though every demon would stand up against you and make you try to make you lose this treasure, you will not let it go. Because in it you have Jesus and Jesus has you. In this word, you have the righteousness of God himself. Listen to the final verse of Dr. Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The devils all the world should fill, all eager to devour us. We tremble not, we fear no ill. They shall not overpower us. This world's prince may still scowl fierce as he will. He can harm us none. He's judged, the deed is done. One little word can fell him. The word they still shall let remain, nor any thanks have for it. He's by our side upon the plain with his good gifts and spirit. And take they our life, goods, fame, child, and wife. Though these all be gone, our victory has been won. The kingdom ours remaineth. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.